Hello and welcome. I'm John, Father John Deere, and I'm recording this Peace Podcast in late July 2020 as we prepare to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, on August 6th and Nagasaki, Japan, on August 9th. I hope you're safe and sound and taking care during this pandemic time and practicing peace and nonviolence. And I thought I'd reflect with you on this global predicament. 75 years under the threat of the bomb, the profound danger we're in, but also share a lot of stories from my own life journey of protesting the bomb, especially our campaign to close Los Alamos National Laboratories, the birthplace of the bomb. For the last 17 years, I've been organizing an annual anti-nuclear pro-disarmament vigil on August 6th with friends in Los Alamos, New Mexico actually right in Ashley Pond Park in the center of town, which is the actual physical spot where the Hiroshima bomb was built 75 years ago this summer. And there in that park, we've been keeping an annual vigil and calling for the abolition of nuclear weapons and the closing of the labs and the cleaning up of the environment, which is all radioactive, and reparations for the downwinders and the indigenous people whose land was stolen. And for the last three years, my New Mexico friends and I have been meeting regularly in Santa Fe to plan three days of vigils, rallies, and workshops in New Mexico to commemorate this 75th anniversary. But now, because of the pandemic, instead we had to move the whole thing all online. So we're going to have a powerful one-hour commemoration on August 6, 2020, online, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. You can find it at campaignnonviolence.org, which is also pacheybene.org. It's free. I'll be the host. We'll have a blessing from one of the women at the local Pueblo, then feature Jay from Nuke Watch, New Mexico, then Roshi Joan Halifax from the Ubaya Zen Center, then Dr. Ira Helfand from um, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and close with Archbishop John Wester of New Mexico. So it's quite a lineup and we will also be part of the two-day online webinar put together by a national coalition of over 150 peace groups. They're going to have all day long webinars, August 6th and August 9th. And you can watch and you can watch ours and all of them later on YouTube as well. So we remember what the United States did 75 years ago when we dropped these bombs and killed 200,000 people at Hiroshima and another 40,000 people in Nagasaki. And what we want to do is repent for this evil, for creating these weapons of mass destruction, and to recommit ourselves with this anniversary to building a global grassroots movement for the abolition of nuclear weapons and war itself, so that those billions and billions of dollars could be spent instead on food, clean water, housing, education, jobs, healthcare, and dignity for every human being on the planet and protecting and restoring creation. And I like to make comments. I have notes here, but as I go along, you heard me say maybe several times already, we're calling for the abolition of nuclear weapons. I want you to be very well aware that in the United States right now, the leading activists for disarmament, I'm talking about the peace movement, are not all for the abolition of nuclear weapons. People are talking about freezing, keeping the numbers, deterrence, 
All of that, to my mind, is crazy. I think we need to always call for the abolition of nuclear weapons. So I'm just pointing that out. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the few people who say this. Um, well, here's Gandhi, what he said 75 years ago on the day he heard about the U.S. atomic bombings. Quote, we have seen the physical effects of the atomic bomb on the Japanese people, but it is too early to see the spiritual effects on the people who made and used the bomb. The Americans. Well, that's what I think we're seeing these days, the unholy spiritual consequences of vaporizing hundreds of thousands of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the spiritual consequences of building tens of thousands of nuclear weapons over the decade, which could blow the planet some 20 times over, the spiritual consequences of consigning every human being on the planet to live under a cloud of terror. I call it a sort of global death row, all maintained by your tax dollars, by the United States government, the Congress, the Pentagon, and our politicians. And as I think on these things in this anniversary, I ponder the surreal fact, you can reflect on these things in yourself as I'm talking, I have never known life outside of the threat of nuclear extinction. We don't often think of it that way. I'm 60, and I've only known my life under the bomb. Most of us have never known life except under the threat of nuclear extinction at any moment. And this continues right up to this moment. Actually, according to the doomsday clock, we are in greater danger now, right now, this August 2020, than ever before, certainly since the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, this is not the will of the God of peace for any one of us. God doesn't want us to live in fear. God doesn't want us to be vaporized. And God doesn't want us to spend our whole lives under the threat of this sh nuclear shadow. The God of peace wants humanity to live in peace. But I think we're all in massive denial. And we, the psychiatrists, the anti-nuclear psychiatrists, well, mainly Robert Lifton, he coined the phrase that humanity suffers from psychic numbness. We're psychically numb to the reality of nuclear war. So we go about our lives as if everything is fine while we inch closer and closer every day to another Hiroshima. So we brutally killed hundreds of thousands of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then started the nuclear arms race. One point we had 70,000 nuclear weapons. Today, you know, you'll hear different numbers. I, my, what I read is that we have about 16,000 nuclear weapons. Since Hiroshima, the world has spent trillions building these nuclear weapons. But don't be fooled. A few years ago, under, under President, a few years ago, under President Obama, the U.S. Co Congress, Republicans and Democrats united, voted together overwhelmingly to spend a new one trillion dollars over the next three decades to upgrade our nuclear arsenal. Few people talk about it or even know about it. It was front-page news. A trillion dollars, no problem. They're all united. So how's that money being spent? We're building a state-of-the-art uranium plant in Kansas City and another one in Oak Ridge. We're upgrading our Trident submarines and Livermore labs, but mainly at Los Alamos National Labs, the birthplace of the bomb, we are now building a state-of-the-art plutonium bomb factory, the likes of which the world has never seen. Friends, this is insanity. At some point in the 1970s, when I was a teenager and watching the news, 
Like many others, I decided I was going to speak out against war and the bomb. Life is short and precious. That was very clear to me then and now. And I want to live life to the full. But as I learned from my teacher and friend Daniel Berrigan, if you want to live life to the full, you better learn how to resist the culture of death and therefore its weapons. So as I look back on my journey, I see that I've spent my entire adult life speaking out and marching and taking action against the bomb and all it represents, the, which to me is the culture of death, which Daniel Berrigan called in his autobiography, he called the bomb Lord Nuke, which was helpful. So I thought I'd share some stories about my 40 years of activism, invite you to reflect on your efforts too. For me, it, the key one was in 1982. I was in New York City that June when one million people marched against nuclear weapons in the largest peace march ever in the U.S. In the 1980s, when I lived in New York City, my friends and I kept vigil, now think on this, every Saturday morning for two years in Times Square, which is where the location of the Riverside Research Institute was. It was like the 20th floor of one of the tall buildings right next to Port Authority, actually, which is the leftover research center of the Manhattan Project. So Daniel Berrigan and I and our friends were arrested every few months for years there, but we also had a legal vigil there every Friday morning, and then we went for donuts and coffee. But we were protesting the research into nuclear, even post-nuclear weapons and development. We would sit in in the lobby, which would shut down the apartment building, if you can imagine, a four, whatever it was, a real tall apartment building. So they had to arrest us quickly. We'd be singing songs, we'd refuse to leave, and eventually they'd arrest us, and we were very nonviolent. I was probably arrested there over at least a decade, some 25 times. And I think I've spent time in every cell in jail in New York City, literally. The good news is nonviolence works. Riverside Research Institute packed up and left. This is what happens when you make a stink. And all their neighbors in the apartment building, they don't want to come home and see priests and nuns shutting down the lobby of their apartment building. And they're going, you mean they're building nuclear weapons above my apartment? It's terrific. This is why this stuff works, why we have to give our lives to it. Over the decades, I have protested or was arrested at every major nuclear weapons inst installation across the United States. I mean, I only thought about this, realized this as I was putting these notes together, because you don't really stop and think about your one's activism. That means the Pentagon, the SAC base in Omaha, where I spent a few days in jail, Livermore Labs, I used to help organize the annual Good Friday march and arrest in the Bay Area, Vandenberg Air Force Base, the Concord Naval Weapons Station, which has nuclear weapons, to the Nevada test site near Las Vegas, where I've, I've certainly been arrested 20 times there and was on the board for many years of the Nevada Desert Experience. We, we brought in over, well, we brought in tens of thousands of people, but over a decade, 25,000 people were arrested there and uh, nuclear weapons testing was stopped because of that campaign. To the Trident Submarine Base in Bangor, Washington, the Trident Submarine Base in Kings Bay, Georgia. The, I was in the Trident Submarine Base in Faslane, Scotland. But the one that's most memorable is the Trident Sub Base in Groton, Connecticut. Now think about that. That's um, just at the border of Rhode Island, at the Thames River. 
And that is a very deep river. It's where the Trident submarine parks. So, you know, if you think about it, the Trident submarine can only dock in several places on the planet. Boy, if I start talking about that and tell you more details, I'll never get through my stories, but I've learned so much. But what happened this day was they were launching a new Trident submarine. I think it was the USS Rhode Island, right into the Thames River. And there were 10,000 naval officials there, all dressed in white. I think the vice president was there. The band was playing. And the Trident was above ground. So it was out of the water on this kind of conveyor belt track. And when they hit it with the champagne bottle, it was going to slide into the Thames River and right there and around into the Atlantic. So we disrupted all their festivities, as you do. They were having champagne, and it was a party, and what, how wonderful. We, and, you know, of course, each Trident submarine is at least 800 Hiroshima's. And I don't remember the statistics, but I think we have 19 of them now floating around the world, permanently under the ground, underwater. I mean. So 21 people sat in right at the entrance were, and blocked it and were arrested. But while they were getting all the attention and the police and the commotion, <laughs> I hope you'll laugh because that makes me laugh. Four of us, remember, everything is closed, the river is closed, there's police everywhere, it's just a little tiny New England town. We got a canoe and we put the canoe under our arms. Now, here's four guys, we're all best friends sneaking between houses, running down behind somebody's backyard with a canoe. And we're going to put it into the Thames River and row up to the launch of the Trident submarine. Well, have you been in the Thames River? That thing was moving so fast. I thought for sure we were going to die because it went right into the Atlantic Ocean. The four of us get into the canoe. Suddenly, we're halfway down the Thames River. And there's the Trident submarine looking right at us. So we stood up in the canoe and held our banner, which said, disarm the Trident, live in peace. This is like the Marx Brothers taking on the Trident submarine. Uh, just then the cops came. They were in these single one-person speedboats. They sped up next to us, grabbed us. Hey, you can't be here. Of course, they tipped over the canoe. And we all went flying into the river. And this is about, I don't know, 20 yards in front of the stands with 10,000 white Navy officials. Suddenly the band stops. All their mouths are open looking down at us. And as is my life story, the police started picking up my friends, but they didn't get to me. So I started swimming toward the stand. And since I have a big mouth, I launched into a speech with my right hand up out of the water, addressing all 10,000 Navy officials saying things like, for the love of God, the Trident submarine is evil. Dismantle this evil thing. This money belongs to the poor. I'm, I told them who I was. I gave my name. They all kept leaning forward, and I called for the abolition of nuclear weapons. And just as I was in the middle of my speech, my hand up in the air, a little speedboat plucked me out of the water and threw me up onto the shore. It was just like out of a cartoon where I was immediately arrested and taken to jail. I faced serious felony charges, one year in prison for that. We had a big public trial with enormous publicity all over New England. 
and eventually was found guilty and got time served. And this led me to take a bigger step right after my ordination. So that was the summer of 1993. In December 1993, Philip Berrigan and our friends Bruce and Lynn and I walked onto the U.S. Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina at four in the morning, which is one of the headquarters of the whole fighting machine of the U.S. military might. Right, there was a sign that said, trespassers will be shot on sight. We walked right by it and there were, it was like three airports laid out in front of me with 75 F-15 nuclear capable fighter bombers and thousands of soldiers milling around and we walked right through them and came up to one of the nuclear fighter bombers and we each took out a hammer and I hammered once on it, invoking of course the prophet Isaiah who said someday people are going to come along and beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. Ours was about the 50th so-called plowshares action and there have been about a hundred by now. We were uh, thrown on the ground, um, had machine guns at our heads, kicked, and then there were hundreds and hundreds of soldiers with machine guns surrounding us. And we didn't know what we had done, but we had walked right into the middle of the annual national U.S. war games. And we shut them all down. And all the top generals were later, were later fired. How did these activists get in there, including a couple of priests? It's incredible. And uh, I did nine months in jail and faced, of course, 20 years in prison, was convicted of two felony counts, and then did several more years under house arrest. But the question was, how do you engage the law that legalizes nuclear weapons? Now, you can write letters and give speeches, but the law is the question, because these weapons are legal. Like, so is it legal to build uh, an oven to vaporize human beings? You know? Is it legal to build, you know, uh, you know, death camps, electric chairs? Yes, no, you know? It's legal to build these weapons of mass destruction. The only way you can really engage that law is by touching the weapon. That is part of what I did. We call it touching the idols. And then going into the court, which is the flip side of the military system, because the courts legalize the genocide we're planning. And we would there say there is a higher law, not just the Nuremberg principles, but international law, hey, and not to mention God's law, which says these weapons don't have a right to exist. People said to me, how can you destroy property? Actually, <laughs> I didn't even chip the paint. But I would quote Thomas Aquinas trying to impress them saying, now Thomas Aquinas, he said property is that which is proper to human life. Cremation ovens shouldn't exist, electric chairs shouldn't exist, and nuclear weapons shouldn't exist. Well, I later published my journal from jail, so you can read my whole account of it. It's called Peace Behind Bars, which I hope you'll get. Still in print, it's at Amazon. Okay, 25 years ago, in 1995, I'm under house arrest, leading up to the 50th anniversary of Hiroshima, if you're with me. I'm living in Washington, D.C. And I read in the Washington Post that morning that the Smithsonian is about to unveil the actual Enola Gay airplane that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima with a massive display explaining how, quote, the famous quote, 
This atomic bomb saved one million American lives. So since I was under house arrest, I didn't have anything to do. I walked out of the house, I guess I was breaking the law, over to the Air and Space Museum on the National Mall, went up to the lobbyist and said, can I speak with the director? I don't know where I get this fearlessness, but yes, you may. And I got a call and he's come right on up. Oh, well, you need to meet with Tom, the, the guy who is building the exhibit. He spent 10 years on this. So I have this fantastic long afternoon conversation with him. He knows who I am because I've been in the Washington Post for the Plowshares action. And he was as friendly as can be. And I said, you're all wrong. You got the history wrong. But he was a terrific person. One of the greatest people I ever met. He was truly con committed to truth. So he secretly gives me a copy of the 800-page script. I'm talking about the text of the plaques that would go under everything all around the exhibit that he's been working on for 10 years. And he agrees to quietly organize a secret meeting with me and the head of the entire Smithsonian and the leaders of the peace movement. And then I will have a press conference afterwards in front of the Air and Space Museum. So we did this. We had this incredible meeting. Oh, it makes me want to cry when I think because when we, you know, I had my friends Daniel Ellsberg there, Elizabeth McAllister, Bishop Thomas Gumbleton, a few others. And here's the prestigious guy, Dr. Martin Hart, the actual executive director of the Smithsonian. And his first sentence was, where have you been? You know, this, friends, we think we're working for nuclear disarmament and what that poor guy was up against. And he was trying in his own way. And you never supported me. That's what he said. We got in this big dialogue. Well, we went and had a press conference afterwards. Uh, he, they were, he was terrific, by the way. We're on the front steps of the Air and Space Museum and all the press shows up. Peter Jennings, the anchor of ABC Evening News, was there. Started questioning me and the others. It was an incredible moment. And the next day, it was national news, headlines of the Washington Post and the New York Times. And then you may recall, the next day, it mobilized. The Pentagon has a full staff of about 100 full-time press people. The Pentagon, the Air Force Association, and the Congress, basically every branch of the military, announced they were now lobbying Congress to cut all the funding for the Air and Space Museum and close it within a month. Google it. You don't believe me? It was incredible. You probably all vaguely remember it. It was life-changing for me, and it was front-page news around the world, Time, Newsweek, everywhere. And in the end, the entire exhibit was canceled. And Dr. Martin Hartwood, head of the Smithsonian, my friend, was fired. And the plane was put on display. It's out near Dulles Airport now at the Smithsonian Extension with a little plaque that said this was the plane that dropped the atomic bomb. All of this because I walked over to the Smithsonian and started asking questions. I was thoroughly denounced and attacked in the Washington Post. And I was told I was totally denounced on the radio by Rush Limbaugh, which, thank you, was my greatest honor. But friends, I tell you this long story, and there, there have been books written about it. Um, in those meetings, in our press conference, I met the leading scholars about Hiroshima in the country. We became friends. And I learned 
This is the greatest lie of all time. This lie makes possible the end of the world. Don't believe it. Speak the truth about it for the rest of your life. The U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki did not save American lives. We now know for sure that the Japanese were going to surrender on August 15th. Do your homework. Why? Because the Soviets, it wasn't us so much. It's all about the Soviet Union. They're about to invade Japan, maybe by the 14th or the 13th. So if the Soviets get in there, well, then everything has to be split, and then U.S. is not number one. So we dropped the bomb twice. You didn't even have to do it on Nagasaki, but we did it before their invasion, invasion could happen because we knew the war was going to be over in a few days, and we wanted to show the Soviet Union that we were much stronger. We wanted to impress them. And that began the Cold War and the development of tens of thousands of nuclear weapons at the cost of trillions of dollars, which has bankrupt the planet economically and spiritually and placed us all in this global death row. Now, the greatest historian is Gar Alperovitz, and I really urge you to read his books. Or watch the HBO series called The Untold History of the United States, which is very good. In the 1950s, mind you, that's when the Pentagon's propaganda machine started this myth Oh, that the bomb saved lives. And we all believe it. And, you know, even the Smithsonian, the whole point of that poor guy's 10 years' work was to lead up to the closing statement, this is the bomb that saved a million American lives. They knew that wasn't true in the 1940s, but the Pentagon started to say that in the early 50s as the peace movement began. Please don't believe it. It was a way the United States and the Pentagon moved towards total global hegemony, and here we are today. Well, while all that was going on, it, of course, got us a lot of national attention. And so my friends and I started really organizing. We said, well, I was the assistant pastor at the, an African-American church three blocks from the U.S. Capitol. We said, well, let's, <laughs> I don't know where we got the energy. Let's do an event every day for three weeks leading up to the August 6th anniversary. And we'll invite a different group from everywhere in the country to come every day and coordinate it. That will mean a vigil or civil disobedience every morning at the Pentagon or the White House or the U.S. Congress, and in the evening, a talk and prayer service for nuclear abolition at my church. It was incredible. That was the 50th anniversary, and we had Gar came in and spoke, Gar Alparovitz, Howard Zinn, Phil Berrigan, Liz McAllister, Jim and Shelley Douglas, Marie Dennis, so many wonderful people. Now, mind you, at the same time, I was spent a year organizing the official, I don't know why I thought this, the official U.S. National Commemoration where, well, I thought it has to be at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. So a year, as soon as I got out of prison, I went over to the National Cathedral and started meeting with the dean and the bishops. We had monthly meetings for one year. They gave us full permission. My plan was on August 6, 1995, we were going to have two guest speakers. Daniel Berrigan and Mother Teresa, who were my friends. And uh, of course, the peace activists were appalled and didn't want Mother Teresa to come. They were afraid what she was going to say, but she, I knew I would tell her what to talk about peace. And, and she would be on the stage with Father Daniel Berrigan. It's still, it's still so touching, but she was probably too sick to come. 
Well, anyway, Dan came and Martin Sheen, and we had this incredible evening. So there we were, 5 o'clock, Sunday afternoon, August 6th, 1995. Thousands of people turn up. The cathedral can't hold them all. There's standing room only. And we're walking up the main aisle. Dan, Martin, all these bishops dressed up, church people. We have an incredible program. And the attending bishop leans over to me and says, John, I'm so sorry, but I just learned yesterday that the National Bishop said, we, the National Cathedral, are not allowed to take a public stand against nuclear weapons. So I'm sorry, John, we're going to have to read an opening statement saying, this Episcopal Church doesn't take a stand on nuclear weapons. I'm having a heart failure. We get to the altar. There's thousands of people there. I got Martin Sheen on my left, Dan Bergen on my right. And I am the welcoming. I haven't seen this statement, and I, I, I get, I, what happens to me is I get like a deer in the headlights. I, I, we couldn't take it in. And I welcome everybody. I sit down, and he gets up and reads this god-awful statement. Welcome to the National Cathedral, where Dr. King preached against segregation, where Archbishop Tutu preached against apartheid, going on and on. In effect, saying, and now we have Daniel Berrigan against nuclear weapons. And then he said, however, the church does not take a stand on nuclear weapons. Well, everybody went into shock. They were all like me. We said, what? We, what are we doing here then? We all sat down, and Dan was not allowed to speak in the last minute. They made him give a reading, a very simple, pious reading from the great Julian of Norwich. He goes up to the podium. <laughs> Mind you, we're on the altar in front of everybody. You could hear a pin drop. And he says, imagine when Dr. King was here, this church saying it doesn't take a stand on racism or segregation. Imagine when Archbishop Tutu was here, this church doesn't take a stand. He couldn't finish his whole thoughts. The place exploded. Everybody, thousands of people jumped to their feet and cheered for 20 minutes. I've never seen anything like it in my whole lives. Now, mind you, there's Martin Sheen and I on the altar standing church, but I have all the bishops of the Episcopal Church sitting next to me. Women too, by the way. And by the way, a woman bishop made this decision. And so they just didn't stop applauding until those bishops stood up too. And that's why it went so long. For Martin Sheen and I, it was one of the greatest experiences of our lives. Years later, if you... If you're a fan of the West Wing, when he was playing President Bartlett, boy, I'm getting off on a tangent, but this is just for personal stories. There's a, mo there's a scene in one of the episodes where they're having a funeral or something in the National Cathedral, which of course, they knew Martin from our event. And so the huge film crew is brought in and allowed to film there. Well, Martin is alone as the president, standing arguing with God about something, I don't remember. But it was in the exact spot where Dan spoke and he called me shaking. He could barely get through the scene because all of that came up. These things are so emotional and powerful and life-changing for us. And Martin thought it was great, actually. This is the way things go, is that the church did that. Because we're all going, oh yeah, we're all for peace. We're praying for peace. Nope, we had to wake up and realize when push came to shove, the head of the National Episcopal Church in the U.S. said, these people can't do this. This is a real live issue. The next day, hundreds of us were arrested blocking the entrance to the, to the Pentagon. 
But think on this. The day after that, the front page of the Washington Post had a big event, of the, a big story about our whole event. And what was the key? Yesterday, Monday, August 7th, the number one benefactor of the National Cathedral withdrew his pledge for $5 million because we prayed for the abolition of nuclear weapons. Friends, this is a major lesson for me. This is all about money. And in terms of the churches, and I can say this from 40 years of active public involvement in this movement, the U.S. churches do not speak out against war and nuclear weapons because they're afraid of controversy. No. They don't speak out because they know rightly they will lose big money from their big donors. Think on that. I've learned that many, many times in my life, and I think many places have lost millions of dollars because of my organizing. After September 11th, I moved, as you may know, from New York City to New Mexico in the summer of 2002 to serve as a pastor of five rural poor parishes. Well, I also immediately started Pax Christi, New Mexico, and then the annual Hiroshima Day Peace Gathering in Los Alamos, calling for the closing of the labs and the abolition of nuclear weapons. Um, as far as I could tell, no one had ever done this before. As far as we had research showed, until I arrived, there had been three protests at Los Alamos in those, what, 55 years. Um, so the state newspaper, I don't know how, heard about me and did a full front page and two full page story about me and my efforts. And it was like downhill from there. I started to get threats. I was kicked out of one of my parishes, death threats. Um, and then the archbishop called me in and he forbid me to pray publicly for peace ever again. Then we're leading up to the 60th anniversary. This is the method behind my stories here, is that you see on the anniversaries I've tried to do something. This is a way to organize. Our peace group is going, well, we've got to do something special for 2005. And we, we just organize all the time. Even because we're small, we start a year before, and we just kind of chip away at it. And then the people go, how did you small group do these huge things? Well, you just you stay at it. That's how this works. I propose we study the book of Jonah, because in the Plowshares movement, they studied the book of Isaiah. But you remember Jonah is the guy who went through all of Nineveh and called everybody to repent. And so they all did. They all sat in sackcloth and ashes and fasted and praised for three years. Even the cattle put on the sackcloth, which is so funny and helpful. What do you do? I mean, if God was upset at Nineveh, what would the God of peace say about uh, Los Alamos, which is the end of the world. It's the largest terrorist training camp on the planet. Phil Berrigan told me it was hell on earth. We formed the Sackcloth and Ashes Subcommittee. You think it's funny, but we were estimating 300 people. How do you, we had to make 300 full sackcloth, small, medium, and large, and 300 bags of ashes. We spent a year working on it, and it's hard. And of course, there were more people than that when the day came. So I've been in about a thousand or thousands of demonstrations. A lot of my friends, people came from around the country for this event. It's probably filmed somewhere. August 6, uh, 2005, we were at the park. I gave a big blessing. 
We walked through the whole town. We spread out through the whole town. We had this coordinated like a Gandhian Satyagraha campaign. And right at the exact time, wherever people were around the town, you put on your sackcloth, you poured ashes all over the ground, and you sat down in strict silence for 30 minutes. My phrase was always, and people took it to heart, to repent of the mortal sin of war and nuclear weapons and beg the God of peace for the gift of nuclear disarmament. And then we would, after 30 minutes, you would look at your own watch, got back up, and everybody slowly walked back to the park. So it was, I think Gandhi would have loved it. But what happened was, everybody came to the park, and everyone was crying. I think God could not resist that. Because throughout the scriptures, it say, you know, you people should... Repent in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus says it several times. I never heard any group doing this before. Ever. We've been doing it ever since. Um, we all were touched and disarmed. You know, we are always the ones being healing. And we can't go to Los Alamos judging, yelling. You, just, you, you have to be totally nonviolent because they're the only ones who know how to get rid of these things. I sure don't. So... Uh, this did not go over well with the church, as you can imagine. The Archdiocese of New Mexico was receiving massive funds, talking millions of dollars for decades, from the Catholics in Los Alamos. Of course, everybody building the, everybody building the bomb is Christian. The majority of them are Catholics. And then I showed up. Many people were listening to me across the state. So the pro-war Archbishop Michael Sheehan called me in, and I'm giving you his name. He's no longer there now. And he said, and I quote, and I wrote it down, quote, God can no longer protect us. Nuclear weapons are our only security from rogue states. And I said to him, you know, you're wrong. And he banned me from saying Mass. I was, he removed the technical term in the church as my faculties, which is like my papers, my passport, allowing me to say Mass in public, solely because I was against nuclear weapons. I was punished far worse than the pedophile priests. And I said to him, I thought what he was doing was blasphemy. And I said to him, I will tell the world what you have done until you repent. And that's why I'm saying this. It's really, really a real hardball. Well, the pastor of the Catholic Church in Los Alamos then wrote a scathing, massive editorial attacking me in the state newspaper, saying the church in Los Alamos blesses the bombs. This is the will of God. We're the hope of Christ. And I'm wrong. Long story short, all hell broke loose. And the Jesuits told me to stop all this work for peace because people in Rome were mad at me. This was under Pope Benedict. So I was kicked out of New Mexico and sentenced literally to live in a house in Baltimore with no assignment. So eventually I reluctantly decided to leave the Jesuits. It was all because of my public stand against war and nuclear weapons. I was treated far worse than Thomas Merton or Daniel Berrigan ever were. I'm the only priest, in fact, in US history to have his faculties removed because of his peace work. Eventually, I joined a diocese in California where I now live and remain a priest, even though, yes, God helped me, 
I'm still against war and nuclear weapons because I thought that's the normal position to take for any thinking follower of the nonviolent Jesus. I don't know how you can claim to be a Christian or a Catholic and support the vaporization of other human beings. I spent my whole life saying, as you've heard on these podcasts, I hope, Jesus is totally nonviolent and that God is nonviolent. God is a God of peace and nonviolence. And so we're all called to be peacemakers and to love our enemies, which means we have to do what we can, not only not to bomb or kill them, but to try and to stop the bombing and killing of them. You know, if you read the fine print in the Gospel of Luke, there's a, there's a point in, um, I think it's Luke 9, when they just start, it says Jesus turns and sets his face to Jerusalem. So he's beginning his nonviolent Gandhian campaign to Jerusalem. And he goes right along the border of Judea to Samaria. Now Samaria, you can't get any more evil. They were at war with the Judeans. This is the horrible enemy. But the Samaritans, who are getting what a good guy this is, are against Jesus because he's going to Jerusalem. This is very complicated politics. This is, these are left, leftist, just war of the left people, the Samaritans. So the, the major thing in this one sentence teaching is James and John turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you want us to call down hellfire from heaven? Now stop and think about that sentence for a second. Lord, do you want us to call down hellfire from heaven? They want to be violent religious people like Elijah. The famous prophet Elijah at one point, if you read your Bible, calls down hellfire from heaven and kills his enemies. Jesus, just a few pages before, said, love your enemies, don't kill them. And now they, they want to be there. All it says is Jesus turns around and rebukes them. By the way, notice he's ahead of them. We're all still trying to catch up. Your friends. Look that up. Today, nearly all Christians want to call down hellfire upon their enemies. But if you dare listen to the nonviolent Jesus, you'll hear him rebuking all of us. No, we don't do that. We're nonviolent. We love our enemies. We're peacemakers. No more bombs, no more hellfire, no more nukes, no more violence. Welcome God's reign of peace on earth. That's why I say the existence of nuclear weapons is so far beyond any philosophical questions of goodness or even morality. I was always saying in my speeches at Los Alamos, very I, kindergarten level things. Nuclear weapons are bad for children. Nuclear weapons are bad for New Mexico and the world. Nuclear weapons are bad for our health. Nuclear weapons are bad for the economy. Nuclear weapons are bad for our security. Nuclear weapons are bad for the animals. Nuclear weapons are bad for Mother Earth. Nuclear weapons are bad for our souls. I find that's a helpful way to put it so simplistically, but to me, their existence is a religious issue. It's a spiritual issue. It says, the existence of these weapons say to the world, we worship the false god of war. Now, I'm actually quoting Hitler there. I, I heard recently a documentary by chance of Hitler talking about the god, his god, the god of war. We worship the false god of war, as Hitler called him, not the living god of peace, as I call her. 
These weapons say we will wipe out in 15 minutes what it took you 15 billion years to create. Friends, the only humane, sane, moral, and therefore religious, holy stand to take before God is to publicly, publicly oppose them, resist them, denounce them, organize against them, stand up in vigil against them, and work for their abolition, to name them as the idols of death and topple them. Well, Pope Francis has gone beyond the Catholic Church and the Vatican's entire history and record on nuclear weapons. In November 2018, the International Conference of Nuclear Disarmament, he, he was just extraordinary. I actually never thought I'd live to uh, see a pope, hear a pope say this. He, quote, he said, the threat of their use as well as their very possession is to be firmly condemned. Okay, not just using them. Owning them, making them is thoroughly to be condemned. No, John Paul said, well, you know, deterrence might be working. Maybe it's okay to have them. Paul VI said, no, their existence bankrupts the poor. Then last year, Pope Francis went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And here's what he said there. It was actually on the airplane coming back. The use of nuclear weapons is immoral. That is why it must be added to the catechism of the church. Not only their use, but also possessing them because an accident or the madness of some government leader, one person's particular madness, notice he's saying that because he has someone in mind, can destroy humanity. And then he said this, he, Pope Francis quoted Einstein, who said, the fourth world war will be fought with sticks and stones. He could have added the other famous Einstein quote, quote, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything save our mode of thinking, and thus we drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. A few years ago, my friend Shane Claiborne, a great young Christian writer, brought a group of young progressive Christian writers and act activists who happened to be predominantly African-American to New Mexico for a writing retreat with me and Richard Rohr and others. So I took them on a field trip um, to uh, the Sandia Labs, which are right at the edge of the Albuquerque Airport. It's one of the third largest airports in the country, the third largest runway. If you've been there, there's a bunch of bland, ugly, three to five story buildings right there at the edge of the runway. Right at the edge of the gorgeous Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And they just go on and on. Here's the airport. It's so beautiful. And there at the edge of the runway, leading up into the gorgeous desert mountains, 1,900 nuclear weapons are buried underground. Good to go, on reserve. I just told Archbishop Wester this last week. He didn't know it, nobody knows. Probably the largest collection of nuclear weapons on the planet, because New Mexico is number one in nuclear weapons, number one in military spending. I could go on and on. So I have these beautiful people with me and I said, well, what do you say to these young Christian activists and scholars and writers? I pointed to the ugly buildings, which are the labs, the kind of extension labs to the Los Alamos labs, and to the mountains where all the, the bombs are buried. You could see little white, they look like almost phone booths, but they're elevators that go down five stories. And this is what I said, dear friends, with my arms flailing out, at the building. So you're against racism. Here it is. You're against colonialism. Here it is. You're against the genocide of the indigenous. 
Here it is. Oh, you're against classism? Here it is. You're against war? Here it is. You're against corporate greed? Here it is. You're against killing sisters and brothers? Here it is. Oh, you're against the environmental destruction happening? Here it is. You're against imperialism? Here it is. You're against idolatry? Here it is. You're against violence? This is the ultimate violence right before you. You're against death with a capital D? Here it is. Dear friends, please make the connections between every form of violence and like Dr. King, choose the vision of nonviolence. When I finished, everyone burst into tears because they had never heard that before. These were Black Lives Matters leaders. And, and they were saying, this is racism. If you ha this is the natural extension from the murder of the indigenous to slavery to the bomb. It's all the same people, the same violence. And so, as in years past, we call upon everyone who works at the labs and the nuclear industry to quit. I urge you to call people to quit. I've actually done that and people have quit because I've had these conversations. I think we need our leaders and priests and ministers to actually say that. And I ask people to stop building nuclear weapons and close the labs and clean up our environment and spend those billions instead and hunger in New Mexico and everywhere and, and use that money wisely to fund education, health care, jobs, environmental cleanup. And I always said, transform New Mexico from a land of violence into a new land of nonviolence. Friends, nuclear weapons for 75 years have totally failed us. They don't protect us. I learned that that morning in New York. September 11th, nuclear weapons didn't protect us. They don't provide any real security. It's all a lie. God is our only security. More than, more, than that even, they're totally bankrupting us. Where is all the money going? It's all going to nuclear weapons. We need to build a movement that will lead to the dismantling of all nuclear weapons on the planet. Friends, 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 this is totally doable. The first thing Mandela did the week he became president was he abolished South Africa's six nuclear weapons. Did you know that? It's totally doable. Did you know the Ukraine also abolished its nuclear weapons? We have to break through our collective apathy, like the Parkland students are doing on gun violence, like our friends in Black Lives Matter are doing, getting us to speak out against racism, police brutality, like all the environmentalists led by young Greta Thunberg are doing. We all have to organize and agitate and take, agitate and take public action for nuclear disarmament. I want to tell you one more story, if you can stand it. Ten years ago, Martin Sheen and I flew to Oslo, Norway. It was the greatest experience of my life, and I think Martin's, to speak at the launch of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. These are the people in Norway who banned landmines. They did it. And then they took to focusing on cluster bombs. Well, then they banned it. Then they told us, now we've decided to get rid of nuclear weapons and we're going to do it. I remember we meeting with the Secretary of State in Norway and all these prestigious people. And Martin and I are looking at the corner of our eye at each other going, oh, good. They totally believe it. And they're totally on track doing it. It's incredible. Um, we took the stage in this big crowd and we spoke about the grassroots movement to oppose nuclear weapons and we told stories like, I told them about rowing in a canoe in front of the Lodge of the Trident people. They, you know, they've flown in from around the world, over a hundred nations were there, and they were crying with laughter. 
and it transformed them, it energized them instead of being depressed. Our stories, because Martin and I like to laugh, which is not what you would expect at the global movement had launched to get rid of nukes. And they were all energized and you could ask all of them about what happened that night. It was so great. It was electrifying. And everyone there was mobilized to work for a total nuclear disarmament. Martin did a full national media blitz the next day. I'd never seen anything like it. He worked so hard for us. We were driven around town in a limo and dozens of interviews. Then there was this reception with the Secretary of State of Norway that night in the hall where the Nobel Peace Prize is offered. And we met, you know, hundreds and hundreds of leading activists and organizations from over 100 nations, all of whom had spent their entire lives to get rid of nuclear weapons. Since then, ICANN, through the United Nations, is on track to get 50 nations to outlaw nuclear weapons. Last week, as I'm recording this, Botswana signed up. They're the 40th nation. They are totally on schedule, just as they told us. And very few people know about this. About this. Their goal is to begin the process with the 50th, then it becomes a law that these weapons are outlawed now through the United Nations, and then it becomes contagious. Dear friends, I think this is one of the most exciting, hopeful, and ignored movements in the world today. So let me conclude, what are we to do? First, always pray and fast for the abolition of nuclear weapons. Please beg the God of peace for the abolition of, of nuclear weapons. I'm serious. I do that every single day. We have to ask God. Why should he give us this gift? Especially if we don't ask him. I've learned that. That's the way Gandhi and Dr. King acted. They asked for the big things. Asked for these big gifts. And there's a good prayer for this. If you want a text in my recent book called Radical Prayers, which you can get at Pache Beni. Second, we need to start living as if we deserve a new world without nuclear weapons. Why should God answer our prayer? We don't deserve it, frankly. This is me on my bad days. So we got to do our work, our inner work and our collective work to practice God's way of nonviolence, personally, collectively, nationally, and globally, to start becoming people of love, compassion, justice, peace, to love even our neighbors, to start living the nonviolence of Jesus. And that means letting go of our fear and really and truly placing our trust, even politically, our security in the God of peace. Third, we need to connect the dots between the issues. Now, this is the unique gift of campaign nonviolence, to say we're against all forms of violence, systemic violence, racism, poverty, of course, war, and nuclear weapons, and environmental destruction. They're all connected. They're all one umbrella of death. Next, we need to hold public vigils for the rest of our lives, calling for the abolition of nuclear weapons, to keep it alive publicly. And to keep using this phrase, I invite you to actually call for their abolition. We are new abolitionists, like those ancestors of ours, if you dare claim them, they didn't just say, okay, let's freeze the number of people, enslaved peoples. No, we have to abolish slavery now. It's life or death. There's a siren going off behind me. We just have to keep at it. And whether or not you and I live to see that glorious day of nuclear disarmament is beside the point that's God's business. Our vocation, our work, is to keep at it, to keep that flame of hope alive. I invite you especially to support the Kings Bay Plowshares, my friends. You can Google them. Finally, we need to also support ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Look them up, Google them, study their great website, and do your part, however locally with your groups, 
to build, to be part of this global grassroots movement of nonviolence for the abolition of nuclear weapons, and then do what they suggest. The, the organizing, writing letters, giving talks, showing films, organizing teachings and peace vigils and nonviolent civil disobedience and putting pressure on the government and supporting politicians and media, people who are against nuclear weapons and anything else we can do nonviolently. What we are pursuing is a new vision. Not only a new world without nuclear weapons, but a new planet, a new culture of peace and nonviolence. This is a vision worth pursuing for the rest of our lives. Well, thank you so much for listening. I know this has been long. I hope you'll watch our August 6th online commemoration of Hiroshima and our August 8th online day-long teaching on nonviolence. You can go to campaignnonviolence.org. And dear friends, together, let's go forward in positive hope doing what we can, being people of proactive nonviolence, working for and announcing the abolition of nuclear weapons as well as war and racism and poverty and environmental destruction for a more human, more peaceful, more nonviolent world. And thanks too for any help you can give me by publicizing these podcasts, maybe promoting them on social media, telling your friends. And feel free to go to your, our website, to the page on the Peace Podcast, and add a comment or reflection about my reflections. Thank you very much. God bless you. Peace be with you.